good morning. We'd do well to go ahead and begin our time. It's good to see you all. But it is good to see everyone. It is Sunday. It's a Lord's Day, and we get to gather together. And in, in, in this Sunday school hour, we continue our study in Deuteronomy. Really, something unique will, will take place in regards to what Moses speaks of today. Much of what we've been seeing, there's a, there's a lot of review, and we would do well to review. We would do well to, to remember. We are, we are prone to spiritual amnesia, like the Israelites. We're prone to forgetfulness of who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do. We're also forgetful of our own condition. And so there's been this continual reminder as, they, as the Israelites prepare to enter into the land, to possess the land. And so as you even see that language, you, you might be tempted to think, you know, we, we've uh, rehearsed this quite a bit. The Israelites likely thought that as well. Um, but there, there's much still to learn. But what I, why I'm saying all this is as we walk into chapter 9, there's really going to be an important instruction for the Israelites in recognizing the basis for possessing the land, the basis for entering in is not because of something they're tempted to think is connected to entering into the land. So they're going to get part of the answer right about why they would enter into the land, why they will possess the land. If they were taking an exam on why they're going to possess the land, they would get a 50%. So that is not a passing grade, right? And then when you start thinking of, you know, God's perfections, you know, it, you fall, falling short is, uh, in, if you got a 99, you'd still fall short of God's perfect standard. But I'm just saying here in like this quiz of why they would possess the land, they get half of it right and half of it wrong. And so they're just wrong. So they need to be corrected as to why they are indeed going to possess the land. So let's open up in prayer, and then we'll, we'll read through. The, the goal would be to, to make it through 10, chapter 10, verse 11. So start at the beginning of chapter 9, and then we will observe and comment on a variety of things that we see. And you have an outline, hopefully, in front of you in regards to both chapter 9 and, and the first half of 10. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather as the people of God to worship you. For those who are reconciled to you through Christ, um, we delight in that truth, God, that we can be in a right relationship with you, that we can offer up praise that is, is worthy, that is um, acceptable in your sight. And so we stand before you um, counted righteous in Christ. Um, Our greatest need is met in the gospel as as Christ came, uh, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose again on the third day. And so by placing our faith in Christ alone for salvation, we are brought into a right relationship with you. And and so now we gather uh, as the children of God to worship you, to serve you. We gather as the church, and so I pray that you be glorified through the worship that takes place today um, in our church gathering. We, we look forward to this time, even in Deuteronomy, as we 
as we consider your character and, and are mindful of the condition of man as we see it um, exhibited in this chapter. Love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start just the beginning nine. Let's, let's read through the first five verses and just kind of take note of some important reminders because really what, what we're seeing here is, is God's, God's work on display as you see the greatness of God demonstrated um, through the fact that their enemies, that the task in front of them will be difficult. They, they're going to enter into a land that has strong enemies, but their God is stronger. And so even in, as you read through these first five verses, um, God's work is, is uh, made much of as we read through these verses. So let me just read verses one through, one through uh, three for now, and then, uh, then we'll do four and five. So nine, one through three. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Okay, so as you see the, this, this call to enter in to dispossess these nations that are greater, these individual, these these tribes that are mightier, they are to they are to enter in. They are to dispossess. They are to um, take the land, and they're to know that the reason they will be successful is, is not because of anything in and of themselves. It is because of God. So as you read verse three. You just see the power of God demonstrated. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Note what God will do in this verse. If it's, it's God who's this consuming fire that's going to go before them and he is going to give them the victory, he, it says, verse 3, will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. So it's clearly God who's um, the victor. It's clearly God who's the, um, the, the basis here. God is the, the power behind the victory. But look, there is work for them to do in light of this promise that they will enter in, that they will be successful, that God will go before them, that God will uh, give them the victory, that God will subdue them. They are given a job that in light of the promise of God, Israel must do their part. Um, and their part is to go. It, look at the very last part of verse 3. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So I do think we'll, we'll interact on this reality throughout Scripture. But even here in this text in Deuteronomy 9 and 10, you'll, you'll see other examples where it's God who's made the promise. It's God who's going to bring this about. But they have responsibility, in, even with Moses, it's going to be the same thing. God's, God's uh, 
sovereign purposes will be done. Moses has responsibility, and so he's to be obedient to what he's called to do. Israel's the same way here. They're going to enter into the land. They're going to be victorious. Um, God's doing this. God's bringing this about, and so they are to obediently go in, and they're to go in and uh, do it quickly. Drive them out. Make them perish quickly. And just one other comment, because I feel like it has been interesting how many times we've interacted on the sons of the Anakim. So just uh, any any just reminders from anybody about what we've what we know about the Anakites as we've already observed uh, them in the Old Testament? Big and tall, and then that that will do well to summarize what we're dealing with. Yeah, what was that? Warriors. Oh. Warriors? Okay. Yeah. What? Right. Right. Okay. So you think back to like Numbers thirteen, and you're thinking. Well, the, the promised land, and they are going to enter in. And so the, these 12 spies that go in, and, and as Amanda was pointing out, when they come back, you know, these, these uh, 10 spies are very much influenced by the size of the Anakites. They are not um, up for the task that these strong enemies are going to be defeated by a stronger God. They are, they are not thinking about God. They're thinking about the Anakites. Um, so yeah, that's right. That, that's important here because you, you really are seeing that the very thing that they feared back in Numbers 13, again, they're being reassured that they are going to destroy these who are bigger, stronger, and mightier than you. Even the cities that they dwell in are fortified. They're impressive. The people are great and tall. So too are the cities great and uh, fortified to heaven. You know, that hyperbolic description of just how impressive the walls would even have been of some of these. So Anyway, they, they ought not be fearful of the, the Anakim, regardless of uh, their girth. Okay. Any, anything else? Oh, yes. Doug, it just hits me when I read this and when I was looking at this. We sometimes forget how big Israel was. Mm-hmm. That this was a large group of people, and historically... There are not huge groups of people in the world in those places. So when God is telling them you're going into a land that's got people groups that are greater than you, this land has to support them. And so this it's just a constant reminder to them how great this land is. If it can support huge groups of people and people like the Anakin, it's got to be good. Yeah, that's a really good perspective that they should have had, right? Yeah, you, you don't want some like small, unimpressive place that you're going to overwhelm. Yeah, you, God has been very gracious and good in blessing them with this great land. That's a very good point. Very good perspective, too. I'm debating whether I want to bring this up. I, I think I do. Obviously, I do, because I just said I'm debating this. I'm really not. Um, I, I, I still am very intrigued by something that we even interacted on in regards to the Anakim. I still find myself not convinced of the spies report back in in Numbers 13. And I appreciated the interaction we had back in Numbers. They were right to identify these as the Anakim. And and I think they were being sarcastic when they give their report and they say that they were descendants of the Nephilim. And when we talked about that back in Numbers 13, uh, the, the report by the spies is the only place in scripture where the Anakim are connected to the Nephilim. 
And um, I don't, I, they're clearly giants. And I'm still, I find myself convinced that as you read through Genesis 6, that all flesh was destroyed at the flood. And so, so then you have, you, have, um, you have Noah and his sons and their wives that would, you know, be the only ones that would survive. And so I think the, the Nephilim were destroyed in the flood. And so then there is this interesting statement in Genesis 6, 4. Uh, in fact, just turn there real quick. Because I, I don't know, I'm trying to find myself just to, to study this carefully and think, think about this. But in Genesis 6, verse 4, when it, when it describes the Nephilim, it says, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So as this is describing this, the corruption on the earth that's going to lead to this global flood that's going to destroy all flesh in verses you read of 12 and 13, we'll just go down to Genesis 6, 12. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so I guess where I, I want to just land where we know it would be clear. I think what is very clear is that God destroys the earth, global flood, and all flesh is destroyed. And so then when you read this account by the spies who say that the Anakim are descendants of the Nephilim, they're either being hyperbolic, like they're just saying, these guys are huge, you know, they're huge like the Nephilim, or if they are descendants of the Nephilim, you have to think, how is it that they're descendants of the Nephilim if all flesh was destroyed? And so um, I was reading there, there's, a, you know, there'd be a potential for even the Moses's daughter-in-law, I'm sorry, Noah's daughter-in-laws to have somehow been related to the Nephilim. Nephilim, um, or just 6-4 when it says that they, you know, existed. Um, the sons of God, came, uh, they were on earth in those days and also afterward. I also don't think that and also afterward has to mean also after the flood. They could be interacting on, they, they were, they were, um, they were on the earth in those days, you know, and then those days where people lived really long, uh, and they also lived afterward. But then I still, I think we have to land that they were destroyed in the flood based on this global flood that destroys all flesh, as verses 12 and 13 describe. So Nephilim, I think were destroyed in the flood. Anakites clearly were giants and lived, you know, during the time of what we're reading about in Deuteronomy. And then as you read in Joshua, uh, and then as you think of, you know, Goliath. But so here we go in verse, verse two of De Deuteronomy nine, we see certainly that the sons of the Anakim dwell in the land and they intimidate the Israelites because they don't, they don't want to go in. And they're reminded here, you're going to go in and you're going to destroy them. And verses four and following are going to remind them why this is going to be a successful campaign. And it is not necessarily what the Israelites think. So he will destroy them, we're told, Deuteronomy 9, 3. So verses 4 and 5 give very important instruction to the Israelites. Moses writes, verse 4, 
Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So if you were to ask the Israelites reasons, basis for uh, why are they going to possess the land, It seems from this instruction that Moses is giving that they would have, if they were doing like a math equation, they would say, we're going to possess the land because the Canaanites are wicked. And what's the second part of the equation? A plus B, you know, what what is, the Canaanites are wicked. And what's the other part of the formula in their mind? You are. And was that, and we're righteous, right? So Canaanites, wicked, Israelites, righteous, equals Israelites are going to possess the land. And and what Moses is making sure they understand is, nope, (laughs) that's not the answer. As you walk through verses 4 and 5, what is the basis? You see it on the outline there. As as you read through Moses' instruction, there are three things stated in regards to why they're going to possess the land. You will possess the land because of the wickedness of Canaan. And I think we do well even just to pause here two weeks ago, we were interacting on some very good questions as we thought through um, the, the destruction of the Canaanites uh, and the total destruction. As they enter into the land, they're supposed to come in and just entirely wipe out their enemy. And we kind of interacted on, you know, well, how is that, you know, just how are we to think through that? And, and where we want to start, or part of the answer has to be the Canaanites were wicked. So there's very much... Uh, a just uh, judgment in destroying all the Canaanites because they were wicked. And so here we're reminded again of the wickedness of the Canaanites because that's part of the reason that Israel is going to possess the land. Um, It is because, verse 4, of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Verse 5, here's what's really important, and I believe this is the unique contribution of chapter 9 and it has a whole lot of important New Testament interaction for us to even think through on, um, even for us in in regards to relating rightly to God and recognizing that no one is righteous. And so uh, we could even think of Romans 3 here in just a minute. But think of what, what we're told about the Israelites. Canaan is wicked so too is Israel. Because verse 5 says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what Israel must understand is this this tendency to have self-righteousness, to think, okay, God is giving us the land because Canaan is wicked, so must be, he must, we must be righteous. Uh, and, and they start thinking of, you know, too highly of themselves. And God is saying, Canaan is wicked. You are not righteous. And the other basis for possessing the land is the promises of God. Uh, as he appeals to verse 5, where you read, 
And the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So I wonder, you know, we can identify here with the Israelites as we think of just self-righteousness. They were, they were, it was easy for them to see the wickedness of Canaan. It was hard for them to see the unrighteousness of themselves. And so they're stubborn people. They're a stiff-necked people. We're about to read in verse 6. But what they do well to see is their unrighteousness on display. And so that's what Moses is going to serve them well with in this exhibit hall that he's about to walk them through. If Canaan is wicked, you are unrighteous. And so let me list out for you a few reminders of your unrighteousness because they're blinded to it. I think all of us can be so quick to see you know, someone else's sin and also quick to be blind to our own sin. And I think that's what Israel's guilty of here because it, it shouldn't be hard for them to identify with their own unrighteousness. Um, and so they might even do well to, to think carefully about what Moses is about to painfully demonstrate to them in verses six and following. So the basis for possessing the land is in fact the wickedness of Canaan and the, the promises of God. It is not because of their righteousness. All right. We're ready then to go to verse 6 and following. So, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Okay, so then, then, uh, then they ought to remember some examples of how stubborn they are. And so you'll notice, even if you look at the length of this section, of he's going to speak to this incident at Horeb. You know, this is how it began for them as God had uh, covenanted with them and he gives them the law. And you're thinking the very beginning of this relationship began with unrighteousness on the Israelites' part as they offer up, you know, they violate, they, they, they make an idol, this golden calf. They, they break the commands. They, the first and second commandment, like boom, right away. They, they sin against God the very time that God is going to give them the law when they start out in a very unrighteous way. And so, so they shouldn't be, they shouldn't have a hard time seeing their unrighteousness. Uh, they shouldn't need to be convinced that that's not the basis, I guess is what I'm trying to articulate here. So as he walks through verses seven and following, very familiar events are summarized and not necessarily in a chronological way, but very familiar events, but they need to be remembered. And so that's why the instruction in verse 7 would say, remember. Instruction says, do, do not forget. And pretty strong verbs used for what they're guilty of doing as you walk through what they did. They provoked the Lord to wrath. So remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So uh, it's really going to be um, painful at the very end of this whole reminder between this incident at Horeb and then the other four events that he's going to refer to. He's going to summarize all of it in verse 24. But we'll go back and, and interact on some of this, but just look at how it is all summarized in verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So that's not sarcastic. Their, their rebellion was on display at Horeb, 
and it continues in the wilderness. Um, and uh, you want reminders? I'll give you reminders. So remember, do not forget. Let's start with Horeb. And so verse 8, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Verse 9, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Just pause for a second. This is the, this is, uh, this is the only place where you see, you know, this isn't even just Moses writing down, but this is God. Um, you know, I know there's anthropomorphic language here, but you certainly are seeing it is God who writes uh, on these two tablets. It is, it is God who gives the 10 words. Uh, the Lord, verse 10, gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So verse 11, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. As perhaps we'll read through uh, most of verses 13 and through 21, but, but why are these events at Horeb? Like if you're listing in order of like, why would this be the one that you would describe in detail and begin with as you start to write out you're tempted to be self-righteous. Let's start with Horeb. And let's talk about what took place when I gave the law to Moses. Why would this be the story with the most detail? And why would this be the story that you'd begin with? What is so offensive about what the Israelites did here? God was right there. He was right there watching God. Right there. Interesting. Like in the face of God. Yeah. He had just delivered them and um, brought them out you know, from slavery and performed all these miracles leading up to this. Right. All that had just taken place. Or God delivered them. Yeah, Bobby. Okay, one of the Ten Commandments that he's just given them, they immediately break by building the gold, excuse me, by throwing the gold in and jumping out of the fire as a calf. <laughs> That's right. Based on Aaron's like testimony, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they reject everything, and, and we need a visible cut. Right. So one of the ten, they violate. <clears throat> and also because Aaron led them in, or at least right. allowed them to go in. He's you know, the second man. His, his priest. Yeah. The, yeah. He knows the temptations that they're going to go into. That He's just spent previous chapters in Deuteronomy saying, don't go after their idols. This is why you have to destroy the people. Because you you can be oh right so it's both the past but also the future. Well, that's a, that's a great point too. If they're gonna if they're already they need to remember not to forget. And you're seeing that they have this spiritual amnesia. They're quick to thinking too highly of themselves. Self righteousness is not it. Um, Self righteousness is just all too easy for them. And so what a great point to say. Doesn't this very much speak to the need to go in and destroy everyone? Because don't think for a moment that you're not going to be tempted to worship their gods because that's how this began for you. Right? Yes? Uh, when this was going on, had they received the Ten Commandments yet? No, so that's, that's what is taking place as they are. 
So have they already heard, like, no idols? So, Jim, tell what are you having? God spoke to them all of the ten words. And they said, make him stop. We'll, we'll do it. Just make him stop, and you go up and, and get the story. So, yeah, they heard it from God's own lips first. Okay, thank you for uh, just the Old Testament knowledge there on display. Yeah, to think they are, they are um, beginning poorly. And so they, uh, they have no excuse. And so what's interesting is to think if, if they've just received this and then they disobey, um, this is, what, uh, this is what is their natural inclination that they are going to, uh, this is going to characterize them. This is, this is what they do from the beginning. This is what's going to continue. Old habits are going to die hard. And so let's start here with where you began so poorly. So, so that's the, the first example that is given. Let's go ahead and just read a little bit about the golden calf in chapter 9, verses 13 and following. Uh, Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. When you're seeing, they did provoke the Lord to wrath. And look at what the wrath of the Lord looks like. He's saying, I've seen this people. They are stubborn. Let's wipe them out and start over again with you, Moses. I will make of you a nation mightier and greater. So I turned and I came down from the mountain and the mountain was burning with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. It's interesting. Um, I don't have in front of me, all, but on and on you could go throughout the Old Testament of whether it's 40. You need to turn off airplane mode. Something must have sounded like Siri. Um, I don't know what I said that sounded like that, but okay, so 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, whatever it is, as you continue to see this number of 40 that would be connected to judgment um, from, from God and temptation and testing, uh, 40 keeps coming up. And so then even here for Moses to um, intercede on behalf of them, he's going to do that for 40 days and 40 nights. Here in verse 18, I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights, fasted. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So again, it is described as the action that takes place, the, the attitude of their heart that is on display through the, their wickedness and their idolatry on display provokes the Lord to anger. So verse 19 says, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. Well, here's what I want to say about that. Um, you're seeing the Lord provoked, the anger of the Lord on display, ready to pour out his wrath. Even in what we're going to look at today, though, we are going to see that the Lord um, did not want to destroy the Israelites. So in, uh, as we're going to finish in 
the first half of chapter 10. Look at what we're told at the very end of this section in verse 11 of chapter 10. After all is said and done and the mercy of God is on display and the grace of God as he, he gives them this second, um, he, get, he gives them new tablets of stone. Um, at the end of that section in verse 11, it tells us, the Lord said to me, arise, no, I'm sorry, verse 10, uh, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. So as you're reading about the anger of the Lord, he, he was provoked. Their sin was an offense against God and he was, he was angry and ready to pour out his wrath on them and Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses' prayers work. God does not destroy them. Uh, he uh, does not um, end this covenant with them, but it's because the Lord was unwilling to destroy them. Uh, even when you're reading, but wait, it says right here, look at verse 20 of chapter nine. The Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him, and I prayed for him. Um, verse 19, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you but the Lord listened to me that time also. So it's just, we're seeing the intercession of Moses on behalf of the people, and then even Moses interceding on behalf of his brother as he intercedes for Aaron in his sin. And the Lord was angry. The Lord was ready to destroy. But as you're seeing, Moses' intercession works. But ultimately, as you read in verse 10 of chapter 10, the Lord listened to me because the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. So much detail is given about this first unrighteous example in this exhibit hall of unrighteousness, the events at Horeb. Then in verses 22 through 24, he quickly lists four other places. So you do have those cross-references in front of you, but you're just thinking this is characterizing grumbling and complaining, uh, when craving, uh, uh, so grumbling and complaining, uh, craving things that they, uh, with, with the quail, what would that, that would have been? Let me just, let me look here. Uh, Tabara also, and at Massah, and at Kibroth Hatava. I think that Kibroth Hatava, that's when the, the quail, where they take more than they are supposed to. Am I remembering these right? So in all of these events, they're, they're grumbling and they're complaining, not trusting God, not being content, and craving more than what God had given them. All of these events in verse 22 were mindful of the fact that they provoke the Lord to wrath. And so then when you think, it, it, it then lists an even more offensive thing than the first three of those four general events. Verse 23 says, And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. So then just the, the summary of these events of Numbers 13 and 14 are, are just stated in just, just disobedience. When they're told to go in and enter, they disobey. So in the wilderness, they complain. In the wilderness, they grumble. In the wilderness, they're craving these things that more than what God had provided and, or more than what God had told them to enjoy. And, and then here, uh, in just the very nature of being told, now it's time, enter into the land. And they don't. They disobey. They don't do what God had said. And so Kadesh Barnea just is uh, another example of their self-righteousness. I mean, their, their unrighteousness. They do not obey the word of the Lord. So 
verse 24 indeed is accurate. Here is a description of the people of God uh, in, in their, and how they have interacted with God and the promises of God and the blessings of God. Verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. It's a painful thing to read. So then again, you're going to see the intercession of Moses on behalf of the people. Verse 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness." So if we just pause there for a second, what is Moses' logical argument here in regards to pleading, interceding on behalf of the people? What is his plea before God as the basis for not destroying them? What does he say? Witness promise. The promise, he appeals to the promise by just understanding the witness that this will be to to these wicked people who are in the land. If, If God's promises... Are, are, do not come about, their assumption is going to be that God was unable to do it. Uh, because the Lord was not able, you read in verse 28, uh, would be their understanding, their assessment of the events. And so, so Moses is appealing to the greatness of God, to put God on display. Uh, do not wipe out your, your people. Show them mercy. Um, for they are your people, verse 29. They are your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And so, so Moses has interceded on behalf of the people. And so then he continues to walk through what takes place. At that time, chapter 10, the Lord provided for them um, the law. He had a second giving of the Decalogue, second giving of his 10 words. Um, the Lord instructed Moses to cut these two tablets, and then he will, verse 2, write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. And so Moses is obedient. He makes this ark of acacia wood to, to put the two tablets in, and he does all that he has commanded. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire. That's verse 4. So then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Well, it's tough to even, in an outline, to even describe verses six through nine. It seems like they're just kind of this, you know, additional information about other things that took place, uh, not necessarily even chronologically. But, but Moses reminds them as they continue to travel, all that God had done, the mercy on display. God had given them a second time these two tablets and they continue to travel and it's through these travelings that Aaron dies. Um, there's even this, this note given of a reminder of the, the Levitical duties. So they travel through these regions and it's there that Aaron dies and it's there that he was buried. Um, Eleazar now is, um, you know, steps in as this priest in the place of Aaron. 
Uh, and then it says in verse 8 and 9, a reminder of the, the task that the Levites have. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And so you're reading these three duties. They're, they're, they were responsible to carry the Ark. They were responsible to minister in the sanctuary. They were responsible to pronounce God's blessing upon the people. And that's listed here in verses 8 and 9. And so then, again, you're just seeing God's glorious character on display as you read these summary verses in verses 10 and 11. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So it's a merciful God. He is unwilling to destroy them. The reason that they're going to go in is because of the wickedness of Canaan and the promises of God. It is not because of the righteousness of the Israelites. And so the instruction is indeed, verse 11, go in and possess the land, which I swore to your fathers to give. Any comments or thoughts? Yes, Jeff. Two covenants at play here. There is the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional, and then there's the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant of works. And by promising that despite the rebellion, the total rebellion of Israel, God was still going to keep his word. Now, individual Jews would have to be saved individually under, by grace. <laughs> uh, but under the Abrahamic covenant, the collective people of Israel, would, in other words, Israel as a nation, would, would be everlasting. That's in Genesis. Yeah, very good. So even think of what Moses would appeal to the Abrahamic covenant in why not to destroy them. Jim. We read over this Moses fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That's 120. Forty days, forty nights. Each time he does the forty days, forty nights. No, no food or drink. It's impossible. That is impossible without the God's intervention. So we sort of read over there, and Jesus in the desert, same way, forty days and forty nights. We just sort of okay, but it's impossible without Hmm. God's help. Without God, very good. Yes. Oh yeah. Both. We'll go here and there. Okay. So could you comment on, this is, he's talking to actually the generation, the younger generation who were kids at the time that all this happened, right? So even though he's saying you're a rebellious people, it was not actually them as individuals who... This is what has characterized their, the nation and old habits die hard. And they, they have been continually instructed to remember and to know, uh, yeah, you're right, and do not, do not follow in the footsteps of the first generation. That, that, yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, and so, when you're, so I w- when you're even thinking of as what Moses is describing them in, in that description there of they were a rebellious people against the Lord from the day that I knew you. This is indeed their, their legacy, and so they need to take that seriously, not to go and do likewise. Yes, Anne. I think it's interesting that we can say today that Israel is still God's people, not dependent on the wickedness they're performing now. It's because of God's character and his promises. Um, yeah. His promises hold. Right. Even though there have been 
thousands of years. Yeah. So that's just appreciate you pointing that out as you even think of um it's helpful paradigm here to even think of the the basis for God's nation when he chose Israel and it, to enter into this land and you think of the basis here in Deuteronomy nine and you think of uh certainly wasn't because of their righteousness, but you're thinking all of those apply, you know, in, in regards to God's um God's promises made or promises kept and uh, even in light of their unrighteousness and in light of the wickedness of, of Canaan. Let, let, me, let me pray. Holy Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are all-powerful and you're sovereign and you are good. So, even as we look on the history of Israel, we, we see this on display of your, your, your abounding in mercy. You don't overlook sin, but you are quick to show mercy to, to um, the nation Israel. Even for, and for us, as New Covenant believers, you're quick to show us mercy. Just like the Israelites, we are not righteous. We, we are unrighteous. And our greatest need is to be right with you. And so we need your righteousness. And that comes through Christ alone. So I pray everyone in this room would be trusting in Christ alone um, for salvation. That by placing our faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we're credited with the righteousness of God. So we delight in that truth. I pray as we go into the next hour that, our, that we just delight in, in singing about the truth of your word. We delight as we can come before you in prayer, uh, bold access to you through Christ. And we're thankful for the time we can sit under the preaching of the word. Pray that we leave here better worshipers of you in light of what takes place. Love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.